أعوذ بالله من الشيطان الرجيم بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم الحمد لله والصلاة والسلام على رسول الله وعلى آله وصحبه أجمعين السلام عليكم ورحمة الله وبركاته So today we're with Surah Al-Bayyina Surah number 98 uh, Another beautiful surah that's just eight ayahs long There's a big dispute whether this is a Meccan or, or, or Madani surah because it has the mention of Ahlul Kitab Nevertheless, um, you know um, We'll, we'll get right into it without going to those debates because that's not what we're here for. Okay? So, um, the previous surah, or the previous surahs talked about you know, the importance of the ruh with Surah Al-Teen, then the importance of the intellect and the dangers of ignorance and the dangers of arrogance right? in Surah Al-Alaq. And then Surah Al-Qadr pretty much reminded us of the importance of appreciating the Quran and appreciating the night in which it was revealed, right? It was kind of like a wake-up call that you need to value this Quran, you need to value its revelation, you need to value this night. And this is a night of transformation, this is a night of power where you can make a change. Regardless of how messed up your past is, during Ramadan, these last 10 nights are the nights of change, the night of hope. Right? Laylatul Qadr gives us hope that you can delete all your sins of the past and start fresh, get on the right track, you know, regardless of what your background is, regardless of how messed up your sins are, regardless of even if you're a kafir, you're an atheist, does not matter. It's an open invitation for humanity. Get back on track. And, you know, very, very hopeful nights. So, Bayyina, Surah Al-Bayyina, which basically means crystal clear evidence, right? Bayyina from... Bayan or something that's very clear, very, you know, understandable, very simple. And it's referring to the message of the Qur'an, right? Being, being al-bayyina, so clear, so simple. And um, so that's basically the overall message of this uh, surah. That this is such a clear and, per, you know, simple message, but yet the people of the book and yet the, the disbelievers are rejecting it. What's the problem, you know? What's, 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 what's wrong with you guys? I sent you the best of humanity. I sent you the best of speech. It's so clear. It's so simple. What's wrong? Why aren't you believing? You know? so, and there's a, of course, there's a warning, a very tough warning at the end of the surah where Allah tells us again, two groups. You know, choose where you want to be. And so the two main diseases we're talking about in the previous surahs was the dangers of ignorance, which leads to arrogance, which leads to rebellion. Okay, so that's, that's the flow of ideas here. Someone who does not have knowledge becomes, becomes ignorant. When you become ignorant, you forget who you are. You forget that you're, you're supposed to be humble, right? You forget your purpose in life and therefore you start becoming arrogant. When you become arrogant, then there's no rules to follow. You feel like you're your own boss. You don't want to be a slave anymore. You rebel, okay? And that's really the, the uh, flow process of someone who disbelieves, kufr. And kufr actually means, for the farmer, is actually referred to as kafir in the Qur'an. So don't, if you know any farmers, don't call them kafir, right? But technically speaking, they are kafir in the Arabic language sense. Because kafara means to take a seed and bury it deep down in the ground and hide it. And then claim that, you know, it's not there. And that's what the disbeliever is doing, right? He has blessings from Allah, but he is covering them in the dirt and he is 
pretending that they're not there and he's being ungrateful. Okay, back to Surah Al-Fatiha. Alhamdulillah Rabbil Alameen. The first step to guidance is acknowledging that Allah has gifted you something. Allah has blessed you with things. Being appreciative, being grateful. And therefore, the opposite of shukr or gratitude is kufr. When you decide that these blessings, you deserve them. You know, you, you forget that Allah has gifted this to you. You feel that you have earned it yourself. So, this surah is about the essence of revelation. You know, previous surahs talked about the beginnings of revelation. Alaq talked about the beginnings of revelation. Surah Al-Qadr talked about when and how it was revealed. You know, the fact that it was revealed in Layat Al-Qadr and how the angels were coming down. But here, it's just a crystal clear message. This is the essence of revelation. There is an ayah in the surah that a lot of Mufassirun say is the summary of the entire message of the Prophet Very detailed ayah that summarizes that entire Quran. And so, this arrogance is a result of kufr and ingratitude after the bayin has been given to you. After such clear evidence has been given to you, after such an amazing teacher has been given to you, you still disbelieve. So, أعوذ بالله من الشيطان الرجيم بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم لم يكن الذين كفروا من أهل الكتاب والمشركين منفكين حتى تأتيهم البينة A very tough uh, beginning for the surah, you know. And a lot of people who memorize Quran, this is one of those tough surahs to memorize. And subhanAllah, you know, a lot of mufassirun claim that this surah is one of the toughest surahs to understand in the entire Quran. SubhanAllah, you know. So, but nevertheless, I'm not trying to scare you, inshallah, I try to keep it simple. So, what is the translation? First, let's read. Those who disbelieved among the people of the book and the disbelievers were not to be parted from misbelief until there came to them a clear evidence okay now what the what in the world does this mean <laughs> so let's try to break it down and simplify it because it's called bayina so we got to make it simple so here what does the keyword is mumfakin allah is saying that the disbelievers whether they're the people of the book or the mushrikun they won't do munfakin until the clear guidance comes to them so if we understand munfakin we understand the entire ayah so what does munfakin mean it comes from fakka which means to cut yourself off from something to disconnect okay and in some cases it's a painful separation okay so it's talking about separation of the people of the book and the disbelievers until the clear guidance comes to them until the quran comes to them okay and it's a bit confusing why because did the kuffar stop their shirk after the guidance came not really, right? So that's what created a lot of doubt and, and confusion in the minds of the Mufassirun. How is the ayah saying that the disbelievers and the people of the book won't stop their shirk until the guidance comes? You know? Which, if you read it flat out, it means that once the guidance comes, all of them will accept Islam and it will be all good, you know? But that's not really the case. So here what's happening is the kuffar actually did not stop their shirk after revelation came. Yes, we have some exceptions. Yes, we have some exceptions from the people of the book, like Salman Farisi, you know. Um, but for the most part, it didn't stop after revelation came. So what's really talking, what's really is this ayah talking about? So the kuffar, they had this attitude that, Ya Rasulullah, you know, this Quran, we, uh, deep down inside, the kuffar had made up their mind, they don't want to, they, they don't want to believe in this message. Why? Because of arrogance. That's, that's already there now. You guys know this, right? So now, no matter how amazing the speech is, are they going to believe? 
No. No matter how amazing the teacher is, no matter how amazing the character of the Prophet are they going to believe? They're not going to believe. They actually want to kill the Prophet. Why? Because they have an ego issue and they have uh, this idea of rebellion. They don't want this message to spread. It's a threat for their kursi. It's a threat for their status in, in society. And so for them, they want to discredit this message in whatever way. So what do they use? They use the uh, you know, same excuse that the previous nations use. Show us a sign. Show us a miracle. Show us something that we can see. We don't want to hear the speech anymore. Right? Show us something. Show us a bayina. And subhanAllah, there are several places in the Quran where they, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala actually mentions that they tell the Prophet, ﷺ, we will not believe you until so and so and so and so things happen. There's so many things. Let me just share with you a couple of them. We won't believe in, in you until you bring for us a, a sacrifice, like a sheep that's sacrificed, and it basically um, you know, lights up in fire. When that happens, we will believe. Literally. Okay? That's what they said. In another place, we won't believe until you, uh, we, uh, we will not believe in you until what? Until the earth starts exploding into springs. Until you make a spring, you know, come out of the earth. They were asking for physical miracles. In another place, or you have a garden of grapes and palm, date palms, and then, you know, rivers would, would flow out of this garden. So again, they're asking for physical miracles. Another place, or make the sky fall down in fragments, like you claim that it can fall down if you can. Uh, if, if you can't do that, then at least bring, bring these angels, show us these angels. Bring down Allah and the angels, we want to see. They're saying, bring, bring them down, then we will believe. In another place, uh, We will believe you when you have a house that's very luxurious and you know, has a lot of uh, you know, um, design and accessories. You know, Zukhruf is a, is a term for all sorts of accessories and design and luxury. Okay? So they're saying, you, you live in a house of mud and clay, build a palace, build this, then we will believe in you. In another place they say, we will believe in you when you start flying up in the sky, and then they say, we won't believe in you, even then when you fly up in the sky, we won't believe in you. We believe in you, when we see you coming down from the sky with a book in your hand, that we will be able to read. SubhanAllah, all these... Uh, statements that the Quraysh made to tell the Prophet we will believe you when you come with this bayina when they, they were asking for these signs and what do we know from previous nations if they saw these signs would they believe so the Prophet didn't even entertain these arguments why because he knew they were just messing around you know how sometimes you get into a debate with an atheist or a non-muslim who just does not want to believe and so you're convincing him you're trying you're telling about Allah about being grateful about you know Dean and he's just coming up with you know illogical arguments and then after five minutes you realize what he's messing around with you he just wants to waste your time he just wants to get you angry and pissed off so that he could take a clip of you and then he'd post it on YouTube and say this is what Muslims are they're angry they curse they this that and so a lot of people who don't have wisdom they 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 can't handle these you know uh, People who have these, uh, Allah calls them jahileen. Allah, and the advice for such people is, فَأَعْرَضْ عَنِ الْجَاهِلِينَ Ignore the jahileen, ignore the ignorant. If someone's taking you for a ride, 
don't go along, you know, just ignore. It's not worth your time. Guidance benefits those who seek it. So actually, one of the things that I use in da'wah when I talk to non-Muslims, the first question I advise you all to ask is, do you want, do you want to seek guidance or do you want to party? You know? Are, are you seriously asking about Islam because you're seeking guidance or you're just messing around? Because yani? this message for people who are seeking guidance. If you're seeking guidance, you're seeking for the truth, sure. I'm willing to spend one hour, two hours with you to talk. But if you're going to mess around, if you're going to just, you know, come up with excuses to party and enjoy life, and if you're not interested in this message, it won't be appealing to you, okay? So, these are the excuses. And kuffar, so one interpretation of this is that they will not believe in you until they see a clear sign, a clear miracle. Okay? That's one interpretation of the ayah. The other interpretation is, these kuffar and these people of the book, they will not believe in you until the bayina comes, until the Qur'an comes. That's another interpretation. The third interpretation is that these believe, this believers and people of the book will not leave their shirk and their you know, uh, kufr even after the revelation comes. So there's like three different opinions. Um, one of them is also that they will not, you know, munfakkin, I told you, means disconnect. So one meaning here is that they won't, won't disconnect themselves from their own books. Because what did their books say about the coming of the Prophet? It acknowledged it, right? The Jews had it, the you know, Christians had in their book mentioned that a Prophet would come after these Prophets. His name would be Ahmed. So when the message came, what did they do? They disconnected themselves from their books. Why? Because had they connected to their books, they would have to follow it. So they disconnect themselves from their own books, subhanAllah. And so, when does um, you know, this interpretation of that the disbelievers and the you know, people of the book will accept guidance when it comes? This happens in circumstances when there is no resistance. Now what was Quraysh doing in society? It was creating resistance primarily, right? Why did the Prophet ﷺ have to go to war with them in Medina and stuff? Because for one simple reason, they were getting in the way of the message. The Prophet's one request to the kuffar was, you know, I have nothing against you, but just let me spread this message. Don't come in the way. You know, like they say, kebab me haddi. Don't be that bone in you know, the kebab. You know, it sounds strange in English, right? But basically, let me preach my message freely. Don't come in the way. The moment you come in the way, then sorry, we're, got, we're gonna have to go to war because. I have a mission from God that I need to spread this message. If you're going to come in the way, you're going to pay the price. If you don't want to come in the way, be my guest. Do whatever you want, you know. Continue your kufr, you want to worship a cow, a calf, a, you know, a fire, a stars, whatever you want. La ikraf al-deen. There's no compulsion in religion. I won't force you to. But don't come in my way, you know. And so that's really the whole point of this expansion of the Muslims. They're basically going out there to free people from human slavery to slavery to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala you know getting them out of the injustice into the justice that Islam brings okay and so alladhina kafaru who are alladhina kafaru people who prefer dar- the darkness of kufr rather, rather than the guidance of iman okay and there's here we're, we want to look at four types of people right you have people who are good on the inside and goodness comes out on the outside also People like Abu Bakr as-Siddiq, right? Good in the inside by nature, fitrah is fine, 
and the outside is also fine. Good character, good worship, you know, taking care of all their rules and responsibilities. Then you have people who are, who are good in the inside, but they have outside pressure, society pressure. These people, they need a bit of a push. Like Hamza Radhaan, you know, the uncle of the Prophet. He was one of the VIPs of his society. But it took him a while to accept Islam, right? But when he did, it was a big victory. Big, big, you know, uh, step ahead for the Muslims. Why? Because he was influential. And if he followed, then a lot of people would gain credibility of this message. Then there are on the opposite, there are people who are bad in the inside and good on the outside. And a classic example of this is someone like Abu Jahl. You know, good in the, or bad in the inside, but good on the outside. People respect him, people give him honor. But then you have the worst of the worst examples, bad in the inside and bad on the outside. And we learn about him in Surah Lahab, Abu Lahab. Okay, he's an example of someone whose darkness is upon darkness. Inside is darkness and outside is darkness. And so what the Quran came to do was to separate people. Right? Munfakkin. This is what Allah is saying here. That the Quran, when it came, when the bayna came, it separated people. What did it do? It separated truth from falsehood, right? It separated, you know, hypocrites from believers. It separated people of Islam from people of Iman, from people of Ihsan. It keeps separating people into groups. And, you know, what we also know from the previous scriptures, even the Torah, when it was revealed to the Jews, what happened to them? They started dividing among each other. They started fighting among each other. This was a common thing that the Quran keeps talking about. وَمَا تَفَرَّقَ الَّذِينَ أُوتُوا الْكِتَابِ إِلَّا مِنْ بَعْدِ مَا جَاءَتْمُ الْبَيْنَةِ You know that they, they don't, they didn't disagree and become into segments and break up into segments until the guidance came to them. You know, so, so why? Because when this guidance comes to them, the disease starts coming in, the disease of arrogance, the disease of I know and they don't know. We discussed this yesterday, right? The disease of I have knowledge, they don't, and therefore there starts, competition starts happening and intentions start getting messed up and people start fighting against one another. So bayina, what it does, it, it separates. That's from tibyan also. Bayina, from, you know, tibyan, which means to separate one thing from another. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in Surah Al-Rahman says, Al-Rahman allama al-Qur'an khalaq al-insan allamahu al-bayan. That's one of the gifts that Allah has given the human being. The ability to express clearly. The ability to use your speech to express your thoughts clearly. And to you know, make people understand what you're trying to say. Animals don't have that ability. Animals don't have a bayan. They cannot express, nor can they understand through speech. A human, human being, you sit with him for 5-10 minutes, you can make, make, explain something to him and he could, you could make him change his mind. But an animal... Like if a cat was sitting and listening to the dars, it will make no difference, right, to the cat. It doesn't understand bayan, right? And in Urdu, they use bayan for like dars, literally, right? Because it's supposed to be something simple that impacts you, that changes your perspective. And so another example is like if there was a fire in this masjid, you know, and someone stood up and said, there is a fire, brothers and sisters, please leave the masjid right now. What are we all going to do? Leave, right? Because we, Allah taught us bayan, we understand. But if there was, if the cat was sitting there, would it run out with us? What do you think? No, it, ha it would have no clue. <laughs> it wouldn't know what's going on, right? Because it does not understand bayan. When will the cat run out? When it sees fire. Subhanallah, you know? 
And so therefore here, the Qur'an is speech that's supposed to, you know, be so clear and logical that it convinces us to change our attitude just by speech. What are the kuffar saying? We don't want the speech, we want to see a sign. So what are the kuffar actually acting like? Acting like animals who believe when they see. Allah is telling us, no, no, the human being is far more superior. He can believe without seeing. He can believe by hearing this message. You guys get this point? Yeah? So the kuffar say, no, no, we don't want anything to do with the unseen. Show us something. Show us bayina. And you know, the only bayina they would get is the Qur'an and the Prophet So Allah then says, besides bayina, besides the Qur'an, what else did Allah give them? Rasulun min Allahi yatlu suhufan mutahara. It's so beautiful. So you know how in school you go through theory and then what? Practical, right? To really understand a concept, you have to go through the theoretical part of it and then apply it practically to be able to understand it fully. And so what's the theory in, in our deen? It's the Qur'an. And what's the practical implementation of it? The example of the Prophet Okay, so Allah gave them both. Theory and practice. And so Rasulun min Allah. This Rasul also is clear proof for you. You know that he's illiterate. He can't read or write. He's, he's coming up with this amazing speech. Him, his character is a, a bayina for you. It's a clear sign that this, this man is not speaking his own words. This man is special. His message is special. And so, Rasulun min Allahi yatlu suhufan mutahara. It says that yatlu, he's reading these pure, pure, pure uh, scriptures. But we know that the Prophet does not read, right? So what are we learning here? That the Qur'an technically was pretty much preserved in his heart. And he would read it, read the Qur'an from his heart. Out of memorization, you know. That's why Allah used the word yetlu. And yetlu comes from tilawa, which means to follow something line by line. From telu, you know. Telu means one after another, after another, after another. One reminder after another, after another. He wouldn't give up, you know. He would continue preaching his message and reminding people yetlu. What would he yetlu? Suhufan mutahara. Scriptures that are pure in and of himself, and scriptures that purify. It's beautiful, this word. Suhufan mutahara. This book, it's pure in itself. The Qur'an is pure in itself. We know it's in Lawh al-Mahfud. It can never be, um, you know, polluted. It can never be attacked. Even if kuffar try to attempt to burn the Qur'an and tear the pages of the Qur'an or do all sorts of disgusting things with the Qur'an, is it going to discredit the message? No, because it's preserved in Lawh al-Mahfud. Right? And so Allah here is telling us that this Prophet, his job again, reminding us of the lesson of purification. The ultimate objective of the Prophet ﷺ to recite these ayat was suhufan mutahara. These scriptures, their purpose is to purify us. Purify us. Purify our hearts from all the messed up diseases we have. Primarily the disease of ignorance, the disease of arrogance. The disease of greed. We've been seeing all these diseases come up in the surahs, right? Greed, arrogance, pride. Um, you know, the disease of shahwat nowadays, right? The fitna that we're in. Especially for, for men, the shahwa of the opposite gender. You know, this is a big deal. And in the Quran, it's, it's a big deal. You know, we haven't really come across it much in the surahs, but it is a big deal. Okay? 
just to give you an idea of how big of a deal it is, in Surah Al-Mu'minun, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala describes six characteristics of the believers. Okay? And each of these, and five of these characteristics are, is one ayah. Okay? One ayah for khushu and salah, one ayah for, you know, purifying yourself and all these things. But there's one characteristic out of these six, okay, which Allah talks about in three ayat. You know what that characteristic is? Those who guard their private parts. Allah says, this topic deserves three ayat, not one. Khushu and salah, one ayah. Honoring your commitments, one ayah. You know, but preserving your, and guarding your shame, guarding your private parts, deserve three ayat. And it comes in the center of the, that section of the surah. Why? Allah is telling us this is the heart of the issue. And shaitan is, use, is, is smart, right? He's looking at the weakest point of the, of the man and he is attacking him from that place. He knows that the weakest point for the human being is this shahwa, is this desire for the opposite gender. So, so if he, he can get you hooked to that, if he can get you addicted to that filth and that shamelessness, guess what? Job done. You know? Khalas. He's done, he's going to move on. Because mission accomplished. And that's why this, you know, the, the pornography industry is like a multi-billion dollar industry. Right? It sells. It's attractive. And it's the weakness of man. Okay? And not only male, even females nowadays are addicted to this stuff. And people think that after marriage, alhamdulillah, you know, I'll get over this stuff. No, no, no. You know? You'd be surprised to know how many divorces happen due to this stuff. And so... This book is, purif is a purification, purification of the hearts. You know, this, this concept of having love and mercy in your heart. It's not there. Without love, what do, we, what do we have instead of love now in our hearts? Hatred, right? Anger, hatred, jealousy, uh, greed. And, and without mercy, we have, you know, we don't have mercy anymore. We're, we are not, you know, courteous of other people's feelings. You know, this, this is stuff that needs to be taught to people, that you need to be courteous of others around you. You know, and subhanAllah, sometimes we say it's easy to be, have good akhlaq in the masjid. Outside people act like wild animals, but subhanAllah, I was thinking about it today, that we have reached the point where akhlaq in the masjid now have become messed up even. We hear stories every day. I hear stories at work every day of people having arguments. Why did you step on my foot? You know, why did you burp in my face? Why didn't you put some deodorant on? You know? Literally, wallahi, yani. And, and fights happen. You know? Some people with bad temper, they start complaining. Why is it so cold? Why is it so hot? Why isn't the fan on? Why is the imam's uh, voice not that good? You know? And so, yani, our akhlaq in the masjid, even in the house of Allah, is messed up. Just look at the way people throw their slippers outside also. You know? Um, you're standing next to someone who's less fortunate than you, who probably doesn't have the luxury to take a shower, you know, twice a day, and, you know, he just had a long day at work, and maybe he some smell is coming out, some body odor is coming out. Yaqi, be merciful with him, yani. Understand his situation. You know, you have the luxury of having a shower and putting on deodorant and all these things, but not everybody has that luxury. So he's coming to the house of Allah, in front of Allah, all of you are equal, so give him a break. Yani, nakhre wale oge, you know, like, smell laari buri, you know. Come on, yani. So, yes, I'm not saying that 
you know, come into the masjid with your sweat and your body odor. But I'm saying give those who are unfortunate, those who are less fortunate than you, give them a break. Okay, they're here to worship Allah. Maybe they don't know. He's your brother, you know. If he steps on your foot, خلاص, it's okay. Yani. You don't need to step on his foot like hardly and, and you have like a wrestling match in salah. And some people, you know, they, they want their space in salah. So they stand like, with their feet like this wide, you know. And they just don't want anyone to come close to them. It's their space. You know, in salah, please don't disturb me. I want khushu'ah. So in salah, we're becoming selfish. Subhanallah. You know. And so um, this book came down to purify our akhlaq. It came to purify our hearts, came to purify our minds so that we can think about deep things and we can be people of intellect, people who read, people who read, people who are educated. You know, it came to purify not only ourselves but our families, our homes. It came to purify our uh, habits, you know, our societies. This is, this is a book that purifies in times of corruption, in times of, um, you know, killing and bloodshed, this is the book that purifies. So the message here is, you know, the entire world today is in desperate need of some solution for the problems of earth, right? Open the newspaper, you'll see 50 different problems we're going through, whether it's poverty, uh, whether it's corruption, bloodshed, theft and burglary and cheating in businesses and all these problems. The whole world is waiting for a solution, right? What's the solution? This book. This is what makes this book a miracle. And unfortunately, we, have, we haven't internalized this, this idea yet, you know. It's in the back of our mind, yes, the Qur'an is a miracle of the Prophet, you know. Just like the stick was the miracle of Musa, salam. Just like, you know, speaking in, in young age was the miracle of Isa. But we haven't internalized that the Qur'an, this book that's shit, sitting on the shelves, this is a miracle, guys. What makes it a miracle? Yes, it has scientific miracles and all that kind of stuff and linguistic miracles. But the real miracle of the book is that it transforms people into decent human beings. It solves the problems of humanity. You name it, any problem, economic problem, social problem, political problems, emotional problems, problems in your family, it solves all these problems, you know. But the, the, the tragedy is that we haven't understood this book as Muslims and therefore we can't even you know, portray this message to the, to the non-believers because we ourselves don't know it. You know? So yani, may Allah guide us to read this book and, and read it with the intention of purification, not with the intention of gaining knowledge and just showing off our knowledge. Okay? So, Rasulun min Allahi yatlu suhufan mutahara. And then Allah says, "Fiha kutubun qayyima." It's really amazing. He says, "In this, in this, in these scriptures, the Quran, fiha kutubun qayyima." In it are books that are of high value. What does that mean? I thought it's one book. How can a book have books in it? So Allah here is talking about the, the amazing lessons of the ayat. And you might, you may have noticed, like Surah Al-Fatiha. I mean, the amount of lessons in Surah Al-Fatiha that when we went over it, pretty heavy lessons, right? You could write. Literally a book out of each ayah of Surah Al-Fatiha. Right or no? And so Allah is saying, فِيهَا كُتُبٌ قَيِّمًا In this Qur'an, there are books and volumes and volumes of valuable information, priceless information. You know? 
that is waiting for us to just go dig in deep and explore. If only we were people of thought, if only we, we were people who managed our time well. And so, fiha kutubun qayyima also. Qayyima is a beautiful word, which means qama mustaqim, right? From straight. So, what these, these lessons from the Quran do, they actually straighten your life up. You know? And we all have crookedness in, of one sort or another in our lives, right? Whether it's crookedness in our financial affairs, crookedness in our business, crookedness when it comes to our relations with our family members and wives and parents, crookedness in our pairing, parenting, crookedness in the way you know, we deal with our friends, crookedness in, the, you know, in politics and whatever. So Allah is saying, these lessons will straighten you up. You say, Hidina Salat al-Mustaqeem, oh Allah guide me to the straight path. Allah said, this book will straighten you up. And we say this in uh, Surah Al-Kahf also. We read this every Friday, right? Alhamdulillah alladhi anzala ala abdihi al-kitaba wa lam yaj'al lahu iwaja. Thank you Allah for sending down this book upon your slave that does not have any crookedness in it. Qayyiman. It is straight. It is straight in and of itself and it straightens you up. It straightens your affairs. And you know, even when it comes to driving, we don't like to drive in crooked roads, right? Anyone here right, like to drive in crooked roads? Roads going right, left, roundabout, traffic light. No, you like to drive on the highway, right? I mean, I don't know. I like to drive on the highway. It's nice and smooth. You know, no disturbance, no distraction. You're just on the smooth. So Allah's here saying this book will make your life smooth. Anyone like to have a rough life? And I gave this example earlier, right? I mean... Um, Anyone like turbulence in the plane? What happens when turbulence starts in the plane? You start panicking and making dua and istighfar and reading shahada, right? <laughs> why? Because it freaks us out, this turbulence. Allah is saying, why, why are you living a turbulent life? Going through ups and downs and you're lost, you don't know your purpose. This book will straighten you up, it will straighten your affairs, it will give you a smooth, smooth life, smooth you know, navigation. And fiha kutubun qayyima here also means uh, advice of, like qayyiman is something of value, right? And so here we're learning that this book teaches us values. Values, which is a big problem in our societies nowadays. We don't have values, you know? We talk about external things like reading salah and Quran and zakah and hajj, but values are not there. Character, the, the characteristics are not there, you know? Our, we, as human beings, don't have the right values anymore. You know, the value of being someone who is trustworthy, the value of being someone who is responsible and accountable, someone who honors his word. You know, someone who, if you say something, you promise it, you do it. These are values that we don't even teach our kids, you know, and this is part of terbiyah. Terbiyah is not just, you know, unfortunately, we think terbiyah nowadays, like I told you, is, you know, changing diapers, feeding our kids, putting them to sleep, giving them showers. That's not terbiyah. Terbiyah is teaching them these values, teaching them what it means to be a human being, what it means to be decent, to make them realize what their fitrah is, to be able to distinguish. And then Allah says, وَمَا تَفَرَّقَ الَّذِينَ أُوتُوا الْكِتَابَ إِلَّا مِنْ بَعْدِ مَا جَاءَتُمُ الْبَيِّنَةِ That these people of the book, they didn't, you know, تَفَرَّقَ which means they disperse into different groups and sects. When did that happen? This separation? When the bayina came to them. When they started getting the knowledge. Why? Because they got the knowledge for the wrong intentions. That's the problem. 
They approach the knowledge not for purification. They approach the knowledge for what? For showing off. That I know more than you, right? And this is, again, like we said yesterday, this has started to happen in the Muslim world. People are going to study Islam and getting degrees so that they can claim that they have knowledge. They don't go there to seek purification. They don't go there to fix themselves. They just go there to get the knowledge so they can quote hadiths and quote ayat and quote, you know, different ulama and books and stuff so that they can compete with, these, uh, with this knowledge against each other. And anyone who speaks differently than you, you discredit them by, you know, saying negative things about them. And then it becomes like a cult uh, system, right? Cults. Each masjid is a cult. Don't listen to that sheikh. Don't go pray in that masjid. He's going to brainwash you. You know, and subhanAllah, we see this in our uh, hometowns a lot, right? You have certain masjids for certain people, then another masjid for a certain kind of people, and these people would never go there. If, he, if one person from this masjid goes praise there, then game over, right? And so this is what happens when people of knowledge start competing with one another and bad-mouthing one another. Ad- humble advice for you guys, because, you know, we live in confusing times. Who do we listen to? Who's trustworthy? Who's not? You know, there's so many speakers out there, YouTube, this, that. Any person who's calling you to um, hate someone else, another Muslim, any, there's a question mark there, right? Anyone who's saying, you know, that person is wrong, this, that. I mean, we should stop wasting our time, like I told you, discussing who we are not, you know? Discussing who is wrong. Let's try to tell people what we need to do, what's right. Let's prioritize our religion, yani. Okay? And so, um, what's interesting here is Allah says, Those people who were given the book, Allah uses the passive form. He doesn't say, You know, whenever Allah uses the word, which means we gave them the book, in, in these ayat, when Allah says, We gave them the book, He talks. Positively about the people of the book But when the people of the book start fighting with one another And there's disunity, what happens? Allah says, they were given the book Allah distances himself from the disbelievers To show his, that he's upset with them you know, And they didn't live up to the message And interestingly If you look at Surah Al-Fatiha, right? Surah Al-Fatiha, we say Ihdina Surah Al-Mustaqeem Which path? Surah Al-Ladheena An'amta Alayhim People who had um, no... They had the right knowledge. They weren't ignorant, right? They were smart people. They understood. And they had no ego issues. Okay? They were straight. But then when we say maghlubi alayhim, one interpretation of maghlubi alayhim here are people of arrogance. People of what? Of arrogance. People who know the truth, but they decide to not follow it. And, and here it's referring to the people of the book. Why? Because their book said that this prophet is going to come. They knew him. Quran says they knew the prophet just like they know their fathers. But what prevented them from following? What prevented the Jews from following Rasulullah? Because he was from Banu Ismail. And the Jews were from Banu Ishaq. Tribal issue, you know, tribal pride. But then when we say, وَلَا ضَالِّينَ is the problem of ignorance, isn't it? People who don't have knowledge. Now, who was Dalin in this situation? The Quraysh. For 600 years, there's no revelation. You know, Allah calls them Ummiyin, people who can't read or write, people who have no clue. 
You know, and so they're, they're drowning in all these shirk and idolatries, like all these weird practices, right? Like I told you, they, they take their clothes off and whistle around the Kaaba, okay? They have no clue, so dalin. So both are being addressed in Surah Al-Fatiha, the, the people of the book being maghdubi alayhim because of their arrogance, and the Quraysh, the disbelievers, because they have ignorance, dalin. Okay. So it's really amazing how Allah, you know, keeps connecting these ayat back to Surah Al-Fatiha. And so for, for here, the people of the book, when they gain knowledge, they gained it for the wrong reason. So the problem wasn't intention. Problem was intention, right? The intention was wrong. And then Allah says, وَمَا أُمِرُوا Now here's the, the ayah that summarizes the entire Qur'an. وَمَا أُمِرُوا إِلَّا لِيَعْبُدُوا اللَّهَ مُخْلِصِينَ لَهُ الدِّينَ حُنَفَاءَ وَيُقِيمُوا الصَّلَاةَ وَيُؤْتُوا زَكَاةَ وَذَلِكَ دِينُ الْقَيِّمَةِ It's a long ayah. Let's break it down. So Allah is saying, وَمَا أُمِرُوا They weren't commanded except to do what? Number one, لِيَعْبُدُوا اللَّهِ To enslave themselves to Allah. Number two, مُخْلِصِينَ لَهُ الدِّينَ They need to have ikhlas. They need to have the right intentions. Okay? Number three, وَيُقِيمُوا الصَّلَاةَ Establish prayer. Number four, وَيُؤْتُوا الزَّكَاةَ They give zakat. They help people out. They're not selfish. Okay, so how many characters, how many things here? Four things. وَذَلِكَ دِينُ الْقَيِّمَةِ Allah says, this is the deen of balance. This is the deen that straightens you up. So let's talk briefly about each of these four. Because this is the central ayah of the surah. Allah is saying that, I only commanded them to do these four things. Number one, worship Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in your entirety. Enslave yourself to Allah in your entirety. And we, you know, we discussed in Surah Al-Fatiha what it means to to be a slave of Allah. What it means for Allah to be your Rabb, right? Who remembers? What are the five meanings of Rabb? Number one, the one, Al-Qayyim, right? The one who sustains your life. He keeps you going. Number two, Al-Murabbi, the one who takes care of you. That means he loves you, right? No, you wouldn't care, care about anything unless you loved them, right? Number three, Al-Mun'am, the one who keeps giving you gifts after gifts. Everything we own, our eyes, our ears, our nose, our hands, these are all gifts from Allah. We didn't earn them. We, didn't, we don't deserve them. Number four, a Sayyid, the one who has authority over you. He has rules that you have to follow. You're a slave, you have to follow these rules. And number five, we said it. What's number five? What's number five? Al-Murabbi, Al-Sayyid, Al-Mun'am. No, Al-Qayyim, and what else? Everyone's blank, huh? <laughs> okay, it'll come, inshallah. Okay, it'll come. So you guys get the point, right? And a slave is a full-time job, isn't it? A slave is a full-time job. It's not part-time. And at the same time, as you know, Ibn Al-Qayyim has a beautiful way of explaining how we fix our intentions just to worship Allah. He says there's five elements of uh, shirk that we have to beware of. Five elements of shirk, okay? And we're not talking about shirk of idols and stuff. This is shirks in the heart. So number one, shirk of love. When you love other than Allah more than Allah. You know, when you love others more than you love Allah. When you love your desires more than you love Allah. When you love your family more than you love Allah. When you love entertainment more than you love Allah. You love... Messi more than you love Allah. You know? You have other priorities. And subhanAllah, you want to know who you love? Ask yourself, what is it 
that you talk about with people nonstop. Something that you can, can talk about for hours and hours. Something that whenever you have free time, you're Googling it up. Check out your Google search history. That's what you love. You know? That's who you are. Because a human being in his free time does what he loves. He researches what he loves. He spends his time doing what he loves. So if in your Google search there is Allah and Quran and the Prophet and you know mercy and love and all these things, then mashaAllah, tabarakallah, you know, you're in the right track, yeah, inshallah. If not, then delete your search history and empty the cache, format your laptops and you know, let al-qadr, inshallah. So number one, shirk of love. Number two, shirk of obedience. Shirk of obedience. Allah says do something, your parents say do something else, who do you obey? Okay, I have a lot of sisters come to me and say, you know, I want to wear hijab, but like my, my parents don't want me to wear. They want me to be modern. They think that if I wear hijab, I'm not going to get any rishte, any you know, proposals. And so what do I do? This is a test of shirk of love, right? Uh, shirk of obedience. Do you obey Allah or your parents? What's the answer? You obey Allah, inshallah, right? Um, the third obedience, uh, or a third type of shirk is shirk and sincerity. You worship Allah, but... You have other agendas. You're giving zakat, but you have other agendas. You're building a masjid, but you want to show off. You want prestige. You want people to honor you and say, MashaAllah, that brother, MashaAllah. He's so good. You know, he's such a muttaqi. So your intentions. So what's, let's do a refresher. What's the first one? Shirk of? Love. Shirk of, number two? Obedience. Shirk number three? Shirk of sincerity. Fourth shirk is shirk of trust. You trust Allah, but you trust others more than Allah. You don't have full trust in Allah. You have weak trust. And you know, subhanAllah, this is a problem when it comes to people who cheat in business. Why do they cheat in business? They don't have full trust that Allah is a razzaq. Right or no? When someone commits a haram thing, they don't trust that Allah is watching them. They forget but here mainly for financial problems, right? People who cheat, people who, you know, running haram businesses. Why are they doing it? They say, we want to earn more money. We want to earn a living. Well, Allah says, Right? He is a razzaq. Do you have any doubts about that? If, if yes, you do have doubts that He's going to provide for you, then of course you're going to do wrong things in your business. You know, problem of trust. And lastly, shirk of... Uh, Following rules, right? Allah has rules, but you decide to, to make your own rules. You decide to make your own rules, your own terms. You set your own terms. Allah has His terms, you set your own terms. You know? And so, um, like for someone who says, you know, I, I, yeah, I'm going to, inshallah, fast Ramadan, but prayer, you know, I'm going to skip. Alhamdulillah, my heart is clean. As long as my heart is clean, I'm fine. I have good akhlaq. I'm, I'm giving zakat, alhamdulillah, you know. But salah, I mean, five times a day, it's difficult, you know. So that you're, you're creating your own terms. Can we do that? No, that becomes shirk. You're, you're, you're making yourself, uh, you know, you're being the rule maker here, which can't be done. And I thought of as number six. I thought of number six to add to this. Shirk of fear. Shirk of fear. Fearing other than Allah more than you fear Allah. And subhanAllah, I just recently met a Hindu who, inshallah, will be accepting Islam, inshallah, um, in Eid, 
who told me that the number one thing that attracted him when he read the Quran was the idea that Quran empowers you to fear nothing and no one except Allah. That is the one thing that attracted him about this deen. He said, before I used to be, be afraid of my boss, before I used to be afraid of, you know, um, you know, people of higher authority and this and that, and I, I used to be afraid of people, what would people say, Lokya bolenge, right? Fear of society. And he said that Quran gave me this, it was empowering, it gave me the strength to fear nothing but Allah. And so, you know, we need to ask ourselves also, do we, are we really people who only fear Allah? Or do we fear what society will say, what people will say? Um, did I tell you the, the story of my housemate, the one who was a Christian, and you know, she wanted to accept Islam, but she spoke, and she, she basically accepted Islam in the car with me. Like she said shahada, right? And then two days later, she comes back and says, you know what, uh, I changed my mind. So I asked her, why, what happened? She said, I spoke to my husband, and my husband said that, fine, you can become Muslim, but you can't come back to my house, and you know, I'll divorce you and all these things. So she, she had a fear of what? Fear of losing out her family and her, of course, you know, society, and, which is a tough test. It's a tough test, which none of us has, has gone through. But for the Sahaba, they had to go through this, Right? Do you fear Allah more or do you fear society? Do you fear loss of your house and loss of your family or do you fear Allah? So all these things that, you know, we got to be careful of and uh, think about. So we talked about, number one, worship Allah with ikhlas, right? With good intentions. Number three, وَيُقِيمُ salah. Let's talk about that. Allah didn't say, وَيُصَلُّونَ And those who pray. Allah said, وَيُقِيمُ salah. Those who establish salah. So here it's not just about quantity, do we pray 8 rakah or 20 rakah? What is it about? Quality. Allah wants us to establish salah, not just pray. Establish. So what are we doing nowadays? Are we praying or are we establishing our salahs? We're just praying, right? Alhamdulillah, namaz pardi, you know. Qiyam pardi. We're not focused on iqamat salah Iqama means establishing, making it upright. And you know, um, uh, one of the most famous hadiths about this is the Prophet ﷺ said, Pray just like you've seen me pray, right? And, you know, the people of fiqh, the ulama of fiqh, and people of halal and haram, and, you know, people who teach you fiqh of salah, they quote this hadith always, that pray as you have seen the Prophet pray. And usually, when you see these diagrams in the masjid, what does it say? Make sure your hands come up all the way till here, and make sure that your hands are here, and make sure when you do sajda, you know, Nothing is touching the ground and your feet are close to one another. So what is the focus on? External prayer, right? External features. Which actually, as a side point, has created a lot of problems in the ummah, right? When someone comes up with a book and says, this is the right way to pray, everyone else is wrong, then what happens? Problems happen, you know? I'm not naming any people, but certain books have come out and said, this is it. This book, this 30 pages, you read it, you know exactly how the Prophet prayed. And they said, this is the way, every other way is wrong. And so, this has created disunity, you know. Whereas, you know, our deen is flexible, yani. There's different interpretations, different times that the Prophet prayed. Like, just think about it logically, right? Um, you know, when someone's young and energetic, you know, 40 years old, Prophet is 40 years old, I'd expect that he'd be like fit, you know, his hand would be up here. But then when you get old, you're like, you know, you're 
50-something, you're 60-something, then what happens naturally? Your hands start coming down. Khalas, you're weak and you know, you're... Right or no? So it could be that one Sahabi saw the Prophet at an early age praying like this. Hadith Sahih. But then as he got older, someone saw him praying in the middle. Hadith Sahih. Then he's much older towards the end of his life. You know, he's getting sick. Hands come down a bit. You know, he's relaxed more. Hadith Sahih. Right or no? Another thing about coming down in prayer. You have different opinions. Did he put his hands first? Did his knees come first? You know, and long debates and fights happen and people argue and don't talk to, talk to each other for years just about hands first or knees first. You know, when someone's young and energetic, you can come down on your knees first. You know, you're fit and your joints are all fine. But then an old man, bichara, you know, like he's barely praying, right? Obviously his hands are going to come first. Yani, you want him to fall on his face, right? And so both situations, you know, are fine. You know? And so we have taken this, con- this hadith and interpreted it on the external thing and fought over these small details so much that actually this is the number one, one of the main reasons why there is separation in the ummah. Right or no? In certain messages. But one thing we haven't paid attention to, the, the Prophet said, Sallu kama usalli. Pray like you've seen me pray. Why haven't we understood this hadith to mean pray with khushu' just like you've seen me pray with khushu'? You know, look at my, the quality of my prayer. Look at how focused I am in salah and try to pray like me. Try to do iqamat salah like I do iqamat salah Not physically, but in terms of focus, in terms of concentration. You know, Sahaba used to say that the Prophet ﷺ, in one situation he was praying and his, his um, you know, reciting the ayat, and we could hear his heart was pretty much like boiling out of fear, and they said it sounded like a kettle. You know, when you, like, you're drinking chai karak, you want to drink chai karak, and you're boiling the water? Literally, they say we heard this sound come out. Subhanallah. So why don't we try to pray like this? Why don't we, the Prophet ﷺ cried in his prayer so much that there was a puddle under him. Why don't we pray like him with this intention that Allah will soften our hearts so we can cry in our prayer? You know? Some Sahaba, they were, uh, you know, given the task of guarding the camp of the Muslims, right? So their job was to be, be guard, security guards. And so one of them is, is, you know, a security guard, you know, usually there's not, it's not really an exciting job, right? Just wait for a threat to come. And so, he said, you know, let me just pray a few rak'ahs. So he's standing in prayer and then the enemy attacks with an arrow. And the arrow comes directly into his leg. But he is in so much concentration and khushu, he doesn't even feel it. He didn't feel it. And then, you know, as he was bleeding, the other sahabi who was sleeping, woke him up, uh, or after he did say salam, he said, what's wrong with you, man, your leg? And he looks at his leg, he's like, subhanAllah, I didn't feel it. I was so into the Qur'an. Didn't feel it. Another Sahabi, his, he had a disease in his leg and his leg had to be amputated. You know how sometimes doctors do that? So the disease doesn't spread. And so, you know, they're trying to figure out what do we do? There's no thing of, you know, what do they call it? Anesthesia, right? So obviously they don't have this technology. So he said, you know what? I'm just going to go make wudu. I'll start praying. The moment I start praying, start the operation. And he goes there, does wudu, does takbir. They cut off the leg. Operation done. 
he says salam and alhamdulillah nothing happened Not, he didn't feel any pain this is what we call aqimus salata quality prayer right taking your time being present subhanallah and you know another situation the prophet is sitting a sahabi is praying he's done with this prayer the prophet tells him go back and pray again the sahabi goes back prays the way he usually prays right comes back, Rasulullah said, go back and pray, you haven't prayed. And so third time, he comes and says, Ya Rasulullah, I mean, tell me please, what am I doing wrong? So he said, obviously he was praying like, uh, you know, roosters and chickens, how they eat from the food, he was just doing that, you know. And nowadays you have YouTube videos of, of like funny YouTube videos of the fastest prayer. It's funny really, like, I mean, literally, you need to stretch before these prayers, right? So much. Yeah, that's the record. Soon it's going to come in the Guinness Book, I'm sure. The fastest Zuhur Salah or, you know, Isha. And, you know, I've been into certain Taraweeh uh, where they do the Khatma, you know. Uh, every, uh, like every night of Ramadan, literally they read one juz. You know, and, and it's super fast and Allah, 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 you know. And so it's more of a cardio workout, yani. It's good for losing weight, that kind of stuff. So, um, so the Prophet told the Sahabi, no, 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 that's not the way you pray. The way you pray is you stand up until you feel at peace. Read, read uh, the Quran, feel at peace. And then when it's time to do ruku', do ruku' and stay there until you feel that you're at peace. And then get up, say, Samiya stay there until you feel at peace, until you feel content. When you feel content, then go into Sajda and stay there until you're satisfied. Then sit and stay sitting. Say, Rabbi Ghfirli, Rabbi Ghfirli. Stay there, stay there until you feel satisfied. Then go into Sajda again. Stay there until you feel satisfied. Then come stand up again and stay up until you feel satisfied. That is Salah. You know? So, um, you know, Allah is saying this is, this is the quality of the believers. When they connect with Allah, they connect. They're present with Him. They realize who they're standing in front of. They're not multitasking. You know? Otherwise, that means you have other priorities if you're multitasking, right? Ali ibn Abi Talib, when he used to make wudu, his face would turn blue and red while making wudu. So Sahaba would ask him, what's wrong with you? What's going on? He's like, it's time for prayer, man. Yani, this was their reaction to just prayer. The Prophet would, when it was time for salah, he would tell Bilal, Arihna biha ya Bilal. Oh Bilal, it's time for relaxation. Please make a dan. Time for some therapy. You know? So, وَيُقِيمُ salata And then what? وَيُؤْتُ الزَّكَاةِ Those who pay zakat. And here, you know, ulama of tafsir also say that these, whenever, because these two pairs come in the Quran over and over again, right? Those who establish prayer and pay zakat. What these two do is they summarize the entire deen for us. Why? Because our entire deen is two things. Fulfilling the rights of Allah and fulfilling the rights of al-ibad. Right? Hukuq al-ibad and hukuq Allah. That's our entire deen. And so, fulfill the rights of Allah by praying and establishing your prayer. Fulfill the rights of ibad by establishing justice. And of course, zakat is one of the ways of sharing, of caring, right? 
And you know, zakat has become a, 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 not a priority nowadays. Yani. You'd be surprised to know how many people don't pay zakat. You'd be surprised to know how many people don't know ahkam al zakat. There's so much confusion out there. And this is, again, yani, um, you know, the blame is on the people of knowledge and people who are supposed to propagate. Because I'm, I'm not a faqih. I'm not going to talk to you about the rules and ahkam al zakat. Right? I'm not qualified to do that. But those who are qualified need to simplify this ilm. There's so much confusion. Should I pay zakat on my gold or no? Some say on entire gold. Some say on the gold you wear. Some say, no, no need. It's okay. Ma'afogya. And so there's, this is a, a, a pillar of Islam, guys. Yani. Just like salah is crystal clear five times a day, zakat should be as clear. And so people who you know, get into these debates and they, they're like, you know what? Let me just leave it all together. It's too much headache for me. You know? And Abu Bakr Siddiq, when people, during his time of Khilafah, when people said, you know what, we're leaving zakat, what did he do to them? He declared war against them. Literally declared war. And he, he actually fought battles against these people. They call, they call them Mani'i Zakah. People who tried to come up with their own version of Islam. Everything okay, Salah, Psalm, Hajj, you know, Shahadas, okay. But Zakah, money, you know, we need to pay bills and stuff. So can we censor that one out, please? And literally, many people left Islam during the time of Abu Bakr. This is right after the Prophet died, by the way. And usually, you know, these are people who came in late to Islam. You know how they say last in, first out? Like in accounting, LIFO, right? They came in at the end. Of course, they didn't have the foundation, right? The, the Meccan period, Terbiya wasn't there. And so, you know, for them it was just, yeah, man, everyone's going to Islam. Sounds like a good idea. Let's just go, yani. You know, and then out because they were tested with money. And then, you know, uh, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, إِنَّ الَّذِينَ كَفَرُوا مِنْ أَهْلِ الْكِتَابِ وَالْمُشْرِكِينَ فِي نَارِ جَهَنَّمَ خَالِدِينَ فِيهَا أُولَٰئِكَ هُمْ شَرُّ الْبَرِيَّةِ So we're, we're, let's close with this. So those who disbelieve and those of the people of the book who are doing shirk, who are associating partners with Allah, where are they? فِي نَارِ جَهَنَّمَ خَالِدِينَ فِيهَا They are in the fire of Jahannam. خَالِدِينَ فِيهَا Forever. They're in it forever. And Allah says, أُولَٰئِكَ هُمْ شَرُّ الْبَرِيَّةِ شَرُّ الْبَرِيَّةِ They are the worst of all creation. Bariya comes from the root word bara'a, which means to bring into existence. So they are the worst of in the entire existence. Why? Because they denied the favors of Allah. After all these signs, bayina came to them, clear evidence came to them, they still denied. They had arrogance issues. They didn't want to become people of knowledge. You know, they decided to be ignorant Arrogant and rebellion. You know, that's the result of arrogance. And so, you know, these people, they, don't, they didn't even reflect on the previous nations who died before them because of their rebellion against the prophets, right? They didn't appreciate this gift. Wasn't it a gift, by the way? Giving, giving them the Quran, giving them a prophet. What more do they want? These are all signs that Allah wants to guide them. Allah loves them. He wants Jannah for them. But they don't want Jannah. They didn't want it. You know, they wanted to live in this world and just accumulate wealth, and you know, that's all they wanted. And then Allah, on the contrary, says, "Inna ladina amanu." The good news: "Inna ladina amanu wa amilu salihati ulaikahum khairul bariya." As for those who be- truly believe, and their belief led them to do deeds that would fix things on earth, ulaikahum khairul bariya. They are the best of creation. And here, just to emphasize again, e- true iman leads to. 
good deeds. And good deeds here just doesn't just mean salah and siyam and zakat and hajj. I keep saying this. Amilus salihat. They are the ones who fix things. Fix what? First of all, fix themselves from the bad habits they have. Number two, fix their families. And then number three, their neighborhoods, their societies, their communities. They fix the problems of earth. This is how the problems of earth will be fixed when the human being realizes his purpose. What is the purpose of the human being? The purpose of the human being is to serve humanity, is to make this world a better place. Because this is what ibadah means, right? This is what ibadah means. This was what the, the mission of the Prophet ﷺ, to spread peace and justice and to make people realize that they have a higher purpose in life. And when you do that, then you get your ticket reserved for Jannah. You've done your part. Then in, on the Day of Judgment, you stand in front of Allah and you, know, you tell Allah, Ya Allah, I did this and this and this for your deen, Ya Allah. I, I tried my best, Ya Allah. You earned it. You know, but if, if you think that salah, uh, deen is only about salah and uh, you make that the objective, that yeah, I prayed, I fasted, I gave zakat and hajj and all this, and you think that's the objective, then Allah will say, okay, what did you do with your salah? What did you do after you said salam and salah? Did you do anything with that salah? What did you do with your fasting? Did it make you a better person? Did you do something beneficial for people around you? Or were you selfish? You were just concerned about yourself. And then Allah says, جَزَاؤُهُمْ عِنْدَ رَبِّهِمْ جَنَّاتُ عَدْنٍ تَجْرِي مِنْ تَحْتِيَ الْأَنْهَارُ خَالِدِينَ فِيهَا أَبَدًا What is the reward for these believers? جَزَاؤُهُمْ عِنْدَ رَبِّهِمْ Allah has preserved their jaza, their reward. It's a special reward that's close to their Rabb. What is it? Jannat, gardens, in plural. Not Jannah, Jannat. Jannatu عَدْنٍ Gardens that will be what does Adan mean here? Perpetual residence, permanent residence. This is interesting here because you know, human beings have this thing with permanent residency, right? Until you get the passport in the country you're residing, you don't feel comfortable. Uh, people who rent apartments or houses, they feel uncomfortable. They feel their life is missing, right or no? Until what? Until they own a house, alhamdulillah. That's like the, the ultimate dream. And uh, you know, this applies to anything, you know, your car or whatever. You buy it in installments. When is the happiest day of your life? When you finish your installments, right? Finally own something, <laughs> you know. And so subhanAllah, Allah is saying, I'll give you all these palaces and gardens and Jannah. You'll be in there forever. And you know, interesting thing about luxury, right? In this life, the, the bigger your house gets, the more headache you have that goes with it. Why? Because you have to maintain it now, you know. You have to get it clean. There's more headache. There's going to be more pipe leaks. More things to fix. And so you need to hire people. And, you know, and so, you know, like they say, owning a boat is not, uh, it's not fun all the time. Because especially like in places like Bahrain, the water is so salty. Every trip you go out, the boat goes in the garage for like four weeks. And you get to pay the bill then. So Allah is saying in Jannah, everything will be set for you. You don't have to worry about maintenance. You don't, worry, you don't have to worry about electricity bill, water bills, water leaks. Everything is taken care of. And you know people who have swimming pools, what do you have to do with the swimming pool? Clean it up, right? Which is a headache also. 
and you know, make sure it's the right temperature and this and that. Allah is saying, no, no, no. You're going to have jannat that have natural water flowing. Jannat in tajreem in tahtil anhar, fresh water. Imagine the breeze and the sound of the water, right? It's something that we love. Jannat in tajreem tahtil anharu khayadina fiha abada. You'll be in their permanent residency. It won't be expired. Your, the passport won't be expired. You don't have to renew. You don't have to pay any fees. No taxes, nothing. You know? Now Allah says, رضي الله عنهم ورضوا عن Allah was satisfied with them and ورضوا عن and they were satisfied with Allah. ذلك لمن خشي ربه That is for the one who truly fears his master. That's the conclusion of the surah. What's the conclusion? Who will get all of this? The one who fears his master. Which brings us to the concluding point of today. That the importance of fear. And I've told this to you before but let's just refresh. That knowledge alone is not enough for someone to get on the right track. Fear is an important factor. But another thing that we usually don't talk about when it comes to fear of Allah, right? Sometimes we use fear as a means to scare people of hellfire and death and all that, which is fine. But there's an, another beautiful element of fear. It's the fear of letting your master down. You know how sometimes like students in, in, in school their parents are paying a lot of fees and you know. And so for the student, what, what's his motive to, to get good grades in school? His motive is to make his parents happy, right or no? And if he messes up, if he gets an F or a D or a C, what's he going to be scared of? Not the, the leather belt, right? He's not going to be scared of the leather belt. He's going to be scared that his, it's going to re- let his parents down. So it's, subhanAllah, it's, it's a soft fear here that we're talking about. That y- you want to do your best in dunya so that in, in the day of judgment, you're fearing letting Allah down. Fearing to let the Prophet ﷺ down. You know, just think about it. The Prophet ﷺ, you know, um, he will be, you know, on the day of judgment, he'll be standing there and you know, Muslims will be passing by, so many people will be passing by. Do you want to be someone who he will recognize and say, Hey, you, I know you. I heard about you. Come, come here. You did good things for me. Come, sit with me. Let's talk. You want to be of those people? Or you want to be of those? Or do you have this fear that if Rasulullah sees me, he's going to shake his hand like this and he's going to do this. This guy, he claimed to be from my ummah, but he let me down, man. He deserted the Qur'an. He didn't fulfill his ob- obligations. You know, that feeling should be, that, that's the fear that we should have. To let them down, to let the Prophet down, to let Allah down. We didn't fulfill our obligation, Ya Allah. You know, we spent our life busy. We were too busy. Sorry, Ya Allah. You know, I'm sorry, I was busy. Busy with what? Other priorities. But just to, to, to end it on a positive note, Anas radiallahu one day went to the Prophet ﷺ and said, Ya Rasulullah, um, I want to be with you in Jannah. So the Prophet ﷺ said, fine, inshallah you'll be, you'll be with me in Jannah. And so it didn't stop there. Anas said, so where, where do I meet you in Jannah, Ya Rasulullah? Tell me, describe to me, like, where's, where's the meeting point? So Rasulullah ﷺ tells him, we'll meet near the Sirat. Okay? Meet me near the Sirat. 
Look at the yaqeen of the Sahabi, right? His certainty now. He's going into detail. He's like, no, 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 Ya Rasulullah, the Salat will be very busy. There's going to be a lot of people there. Can we meet somewhere else? And so Rasulullah said, uh, okay, you know what? Um, meet me at, at the Mizan, the place where the, the, the waits will be, waiting will be done. So he's like, no, 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 Ya Rasulullah, uh, there's going to be a lot of people there, you know? Let's meet somewhere else. So he's like, okay, you know what? Um, fine. Come to me at Al-Kawthar. The, the special river that I'll get, Al-Kawthar, come there and I will make you drink from the water of Kawthar with my own hands and you will never ever be thirsty again after that drink. And here Anas was satisfied and he went, subhanAllah. So this is the yaqeen they had of Jannah, you know? They lived it and they were planning, okay, when we get there, Rasulullah, what are we going to do? Where are we going to meet, you know? This is what we call haqqul yaqeen. And we'll talk about yaqeen when we get there, inshallah. The, the true certainty. One thing is to know about Jannah. Yeah, it's there. We all know it. We believe in it. But haqqul yaqeen, you visualize it. You literally plan for what you're going to do in Jannah. How many of us have planned what we're going to do in Jannah? You know, who we're going to be playing ping pong with? Who am I going to be drinking chai with? You know, who am I going to be, uh, you know, jogging with? Who am I going to play tennis with? I want to play tennis with, like, Umar Adalan, you know? And uh, who are we going to swim with? So, it's, we need to, you know, nights of Qadr, make du'as. Make, yani, let's upgrade our du'as and aim high, inshallah. Alright, Jazakumullahu khayran, subhanakallahu bihamdik, nashhadu an la ilaha illa ant. نستغفرك ونتوب إليك السلام عليكم ورحمة الله وبركاته